Welcome back, guys, to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. This is episode nine. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. Find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. And we also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches can network, discuss, share ideas and resources related to sports med, rehab, and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory, details and applications can be found on the website, clinicalathlete.com. This podcast can be found on that website as well, and YouTube, and also iTunes, where you can leave a nice review if you feel that the show is helpful. We've got a couple events. The Clinical Athlete Weightlifting Certification is coming to Manalapan, New Jersey. I think I pronounced that one right. I pronounced it Manalapan on a video that I did going back to my old Indiana roots, and I got roasted for it on the internet. So Manalapan, Manalapan. That's on June 9th and 10th. And then Portland, Oregon on August 4th and 5th, and Houston and Southern California coming soon. So we'll make announcements about that. Um, Also, you can support the Clinical Athlete Podcast by... Going on to the website, we have a, an Amazon affiliate. So if you go and buy your toilet paper on Amazon, you can go through our affiliate link and we get like a penny for every time that you buy a toothbrush or something like that. Also, we have a clinical athlete webinar coming up very soon on May 29th. And the topic is practical periodization. And that is by physical therapist Scott Morrison, who happens to be joining me on the show today. What's up, Scott? Not much. How are you doing today, Quinn? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for being on the show. I'm super excited. Scott's a physical therapist in the Portland, Oregon area. Scott, can you tell our six listeners just a little bit about yourself, kind of where what led you to this point in your career, where you at with where you are with that and, and your kind of day to day? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's good to hear you have six listeners. I was just on PT Inquest and they have two or one, I think. Uh I forget. It was in Nebraska somewhere, though. So. Well, they must have lost listeners um, because I listen to PT Inquest too, and they started with six. I'm fairly. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we're we're they're they're down some. So maybe they have two. You just don't write in enough. Uh, leave an iTunes review. Um, so yeah, good question. So I guess going way back when I was about uh, 11 years old, um, I was living in Southern Georgia, and after school, I would do some work. Uh, at this place where we would basically build gazebos and the guys there bought this old waiter weight set with cement filled weights and one of those old iron benches that was really rickety you had to put something underneath one leg to keep it from rocking too much and i thought man this is great let's let's see what happens and uh laid down pinned myself repeatedly and almost died once because i didn't realize that collars should not be on the bar when you're benching by yourself and uh yeah so very close to being killed by 135 pounds at about 11, 12 years old. Um, other than that, it just sort of grew into an interest of mine. So I pretty much trained from that point forward, off and on, of uh, various different types. I'm a pretty voracious reader, and so at that point in time, anything that came down the pike was really something I was interested in. If you remember back then, it wasn't that much. The internet wasn't really too great for us at the time, and uh, so a lot of the bodybuilder books, um, Brother and Iron, Sister Steel by Dave Draper, you know, there was a lot, obviously, Arnold's Encyclopedia, and just really sort of created things. Went off to college, started off as mechanical engineering, and somewhere around my second year, I realized that I'm spending all my time digging into physiology and sports performance and wasn't really that interested in the more mechanical side outside of biomechanics. So I was like, well, hey, maybe physical therapy is a great place to go, and that's kind of what made me start thinking that way. At the time, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do PT, but I um, ended up working in the fitness center in college as a trainer for a while, graduated and went and did uh, CSCS and then started working as a uh, exercise specialist for a medical fitness center down in Florida and went on from there. I was there for about six years. Um, during my time there, I ran the place for the last while. We had a whole lot of different programs, everything from I did volunteer strength coach for the local high school wrestling team through obesity programs, through uh, diabetes, or we did a Parkinson's program, did a lot with childhood obesity, um, 
did a cardiopulmonary program as well. So it was a pretty broad experience. And I realized that, you know, I wasn't really completely happy with that as an endpoint and went back to PT school. And so I worked full time while I was uh, doing my schooling at University of St. Augustine, got out of there and went into PT more in a general outpatient practice. Worked there for a few years and then uh, ended up being fortunate enough to get a job with the uh, Major League Soccer Professional Referee Organization, where I worked for years there, head of medical services. And from there, I've come into currently, I work out of Black Diamond Physical Therapy in Portland, Oregon, about three and a half, four days a week. Um, patient population is primarily athlete or higher level weekend warrior. Although, obviously, as a PT clinic, you see uh, a decent spread of people. I also run a concierge PT practice on the side, and I do um, some continuing education stuff. So I was fortunate enough to work with an NFL team recently, some college teams and all, where we'll go in. And usually discussion is around the principles of strength and conditioning, um, and principles applying them to rehab. Well, and that was why we wanted to bring you in and have you do this webinar on, on practical periodization with your background. Can we talk about some of the issues with programming and periodization specifically in regards to physical therapy practice? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's a, it's kind of a rabbit trail of a topic because we can go a lot of different directions with it. But I think one of the, one of the key principles is that lately there's been a lot of noise around the idea of we don't load enough, we need to load better. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think that the principles being utilized and applied by even a lot of those saying we need to load more are actually solving the problem. So we've got, I think, a couple different subgroups where we have some who just don't even think about loading at all and do the same old, same old, whatever population that might be that they're working with. And it's pretty much a chronic, un chronically underloaded type uh, situation. And then we have a subgroup that's aware of the fact that underloading is an issue, and yet the solutions being utilized are not really ones that are solving the problem. So we think about the conversation of, it's you know, three, if I hear three sets of ten again, I'm going to have a cow. Well, there's actually nothing wrong with three sets of ten. It's actually a pretty good. If you only had one set rep scheme to go with, it's not that bad as long as dosage is appropriate for that, and depending on the goals um, situated. So, I think that's the interesting thing that I'm seeing more and more is a discussion will start with. Hey, underloading is a problem. I'm like, oh, yeah, I hate underloading. The person's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is what I do. And I'm like, well, I, I think you're misunderstood. You know, we both agree that underloading is a problem, but I don't think we can continue this conversation because of the fact that we don't understand some of the foundational principles that actually equal what underloading is. Um, so I think as a brief synopsis, that's probably the big things. And how do you define load? Is it always external load, the way we think about it in more traditional terms, or can that be intensity, fatigue, other variables like that? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a good question. I really like uh, Mladen's, uh, he sort of broke it down into three different uh, components. So we can look at intensity. I mean, the, the traditional thing is intensity is percentage of one RM, right? So that's how intensity should be. However, when you talk to most people, intensity is defined by how much effort they utilize, right? So we can we can look at this from a couple different perspectives, and I, I don't know that I'm 100% quoting him, but he's definitely influenced these three. Is One is looking at load as a percentage of some repetition maximum. Another one is looking at intensity as a percentage of effort applied to each rep. So we can look at taking something like a heavy slow load, which is a lower load or moderate load that is moved slowly or something like your oxidative squats, right? So we're not, we're not maximal effort on each one. Or we can take something like a jump squat, which is low, very low load, but high effort. However, we can then also take it to a fatiguing perspective. So like your rating of perceived exertion for the set. 
So we might take, again, that jump squat. You might do maximal effort at a low percentage of rep max, but you're stopping after, let's say, three or four reps. And so we're not actually hitting a high level of fatigue. Or we could take that something like we we're talking about the oxidative squat, and you're taking that to a very high level of fatigue, even though the effort for each repetition is not the same. So I kind of look at it as breaking down into those three areas. And more traditionally, you can look at internal versus external load as well. And that's where the RPE, heart rate responses, things like that would be your internal load. External load would be something, you know, based off of the amount of weight on the bar, the resistance, the velocity that they're moving at. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's important to be conscious of the fact that there's an internal and external load. I think RPE clinically is probably our best window into it. Um, and then external load is pretty easy to tell just based off of the weight on the bar. Do you prescribe those metrics if you're going to be loading an athlete in clinic, let's say they're doing sets of, of eight or something on the squat or the deadlift, are you basing your actual external intensity, you know, load on the bar just based on prior training sessions or maybe their prior history? And then you're giving them an RPE guideline as context. How, how do you, what metrics are you using to give the athlete so that they, they know? Yeah. Um, that's a good question, and I think it this is gets down to the heart of the whole issue, right? How do you know what to do, how much to do? And this is where um, I would say personally I'm looking at a set rep sort of target zone. So if I'm looking at, let's say, I want them to be hitting fatigue somewhere between, let's say, five to seven reps, and I might – just keep adding load until they fail within that rep range, right? So we're using some sort of a RPE fixated endpoint. Um, other times I might have an individual who I know they can't tolerate higher load. And so I might leave the RP or the uh, rep range completely open. And then what I'm doing is closing down weight. So it's just going to be a set weight and I'm closing down an RPE, I want them to achieve some RPE, and I don't care how many reps it takes them to get there. So whether it's 5 or 25, you know, this is somebody who maybe earlier on we're looking more for hypertrophy, or there's something where they can't tolerate high load. And so, yeah, it's not the best way to get strength. However, it will give us some strength, which will get us kind of where we're trying to go. Um, and then I think we can also look at just doing the same sets to some sort of external or internal, sorry, um, rating of perceived exertion, right? So you could choose a weight based off of something they've done previously and just continue doing sets of, let's say, do sets of six until you hit an RPE of around eight. And this might be an individual where I'm not really looking to push him as hard as right that first person. We're just keep at, we're adding load until they hit the point where the load is what constrains them. This last individual might be someone who I'm okay with spending some time loading them, but I don't think that they're going to tolerate a higher level. Or maybe they've just had a disastrous business trip or their girlfriend or boyfriend just dumped them or they drank too much the night before, right? So all these other sort of factors start coming into play. And now I'm looking at more of an internal load marker to dictate how far they're going while I'm still using past experience with the individual and weights that they've hit before to kind of inform my prior uh, belief on what they're going to be able to tolerate. So the initial load is selected based off of me having worked with them before, but now my within-clinic auto-regulatory type feedback loop is based more off of the fact that their internal load needs to kind of dictate this, and it needs to be constrained by something that's not going to let them get up into an intensity level looking at percentage of RM that might be problematic. Does that make any sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, it sounds like it's individual plus task plus environment. It's very yeah. much so context yeah, we, specific. weird how that keeps emerging, right? <laughs> yeah. Would you say also, when we look at these more traditional models of periodization with your accumulation, transmutation, realization phases, these types of more linear models, and you can even, I mean, you can undulate within those, but the trend line is still linear. Do you think it's more complicated in a clinical setting because you've got confounding factors like pain, past injury, current injury, these types of things? Do you think that's what maybe makes it more of a 
of an up and down process. And then is how important it is, is it to set expectations right off the bat that it may not be this linear approach? Right. Um, I think there's a couple answers. One would be that I don't think that in the athletic setting that it's this linear approach. I think that we've just been lulled into a sort of false sense that that's how it works. Um, but when you actually start looking into it, John Kiley is a guy who I probably influenced me more than anybody else on this. Um, but he wrote the paper, um, 20 years, what, 21st century programming, uh, evidence led or, um, experience driven or something like that. I forget the exact name, but the, he was a guy who was digging into all this and starts coming up short on everything. Um, so I think to set off the initial statement is that I don't think in any setting it's really that simple. However, complex scenarios and complex problems are usually solved by simple interventions, right? So while we acknowledge that it is much more complex than the models have tried to indicate, we also have to understand that that does not mean that our approach then needs to be enormously complex. Most of these things can be solved with very simple uh, stop uh, checks and balances. Um, so to go to from a then the, the difference clinically, I think we have two things going on there. One is absolutely the volatility of the individual clinically is much, much higher than the volatility of the just general trainee or typically athlete. Although if, as we get to higher and higher levels, athletes are sort of walking the edge of injury. And so some volatility might not be quite as much. However, the margin of error might be smaller. Um, and then at the other extreme with the rehab perspective, the margin of error might also be smaller. So if we're looking at things from sort of the tissue homeostasis model, that envelope of function might be very, very, very narrow. And this is where, you know, if we look at the discussion on titration of uh, drugs or something, what I tell patients is if you take one Aleve, it may or may not help your headache. If you take 50 Aleves, you've got another set of problems. But somewhere between there, you're probably okay. But if we're talking about the anesthesiologist, he can't just use that, right? His bandwidth is not that narrow. The difference of a millimeter or two might be enough to mean not enough or way too much. And I think that as injury is added or potentially very high performance, that titration window really narrows down between too much and too little. Um, and so I think that's where clinically one of the bigger challenges comes in. On the flip side, clinically, especially with your more outpatient population or somebody who's postoperative, I think you're also dealing with almost newbie gains all over again because most of these people are relatively detrained. And so the the amount of effort and thought that might have to go into getting an extra hundredth of a second on somebody's uh, sprint time isn't really what we're dealing with clinically. We're just trying to get people back up to something that they've been before, which we do know is relatively not easy to do, but it's not complex necessarily. It just requires continual application. I mean, Basically, I think Kylie once said that the principle of progressive overload is eminently sensible. And that's that really sums up the majority of this. So I know it's a little bit winding from your question, but uh, I think it's kind of we have to touch on a few different spots to answer something about what's the difference. No, it makes great sense. Going back around to the initial topic of what is load, do you simplify it by just saying pick as a clinician, just pick a metric, pick something to track progress and go from there as opposed to trying to create this perfect 12-week training block that progresses straight to this pinnacle, you know, and you've got the athlete who's going to be going to seven different practices and he's like still hurt and he's got the parents, all these, there's so many factors in. All the metrics that you listed, pick one or two, do something, get the response to that training and then you know adjust your metrics or uh, adjust from there is, is that kind of where you're going at in regards to simplifying things yeah i think um i think there's a lot of different ways that we can simplify it so i uh, 
control parameters. So if we look at some of the uh, dynamical systems, especially in the context of movement, right, we're looking for something that when we modulate that, everything else organizes around it. And uh, I think we could we could choose. There's a few different things we could choose. There's an argument to be made, especially it depends on the clinician that we're talking to and their comfort level with, you know, rolling between different things. Um, so, yes, it's a simple metric. However, we need to make 100% sure that the metric actually matters, right? Because not everything that's measured matters. And a lot of times it's, oh, well, I'm just following this. But I think we need an external objective measure that we take on a basis Frequently enough to where we would are getting feedback, but not so frequently that we wouldn't expect to actually see changes and allow that to inform the process. So if we're, you know, if you have access to a force plate, you might do some of your kind of movement jump testing or your isometric mid-thigh pull. Or if you've got something like an isokinetic dynamometer, you might be looking at your quad index post-op, you know, knee um, or even a handheld dynamometer, we might be looking at some of this. Or if you're using lower tech stuff, you might use, you know, like a shoulder external rotation, isometric hold for time, right? So we have an external measure that we know matters. And then we're comparing those little within session fluctuations and changes to that external thing. Because I think it's very easy to either overcomplicate or oversimplify on a visit by visit basis, especially if you're seeing a lot of people every week. And if you don't actually step outside of that, hold yourself honest and then go back in, I think we have a little bit of an issue. So in a long roundabout thing, yes, it is one or two things that we've chosen. However, I think we still, even though we're choosing one or two things, it also needs to have something to report back to to inform it from a feedback loop. If I were going to go with the most simple approach possible, I did a quick little video that I put up about, you know, I think if we just did taking sets to failure and we just made sure that failure, that's probably the easiest, most objective point and everything else can kind of organize around that. There's a lot of arguments that we don't need it, which is a completely honest. Um, there's a lot of arguments that it might increase the amount of fatigue. Yeah, that's all true. However, my issue is that most of what I'm seeing is people not doing enough versus doing too much. And so if you just want a simple heuristic that's going to solve most problems, I think some form of actual failure being thrown into the workout is probably going to be the most simple day-to-day -day uh, external feedback loop that just sort of ensures that you're getting enough done. And I think some people are scared of failure in a, a clinical setting because they're like, oh, they're already hurt. I'm going to hurt them more. But if you look at some of the tendinopathy protocols, patellar tendinopathy, for example, they're going with 15 rep maxes, 10 rep maxes, 8 rep maxes, maxes. Yep. But, yep. It, but if you look at the parameters, it's a tempo. So you yep. can so you can manipulate these variables so that you're still yep. you're still sub threshold from a ultimately ultimate force production standpoint. Correct. But yeah, but you are going to some you are going to a fatigue state. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes back to the idea of the three principles, right? We're looking at either percentage of rep max, repetition maximum, uh, percentage of effort per repetition and just general RPE or fatigue of the set. And if we play with all three of those, the, as we control one, the other two respond to reflect that back. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's an argument to be made early on for not going to failure. I think, you know, we're looking at if that's all anybody ever does, you're going to have a lot of delayed onset muscle soreness early on with people you know, at the end of the day, that's probably if you're working with an athletic environment, hopefully it's not a big deal. However, I would say that at the higher levels, it's an enormous deal, especially if they're having to still perform and play. Um, and that's where something like knowing about the repeated bout effect and looking at coming in at a lower level. Sure. You know, I'm not saying that going to failure is solving all our problems. 
I'm just saying at the end of the rehabilitation process, you will have ensured that you've done enough. But yeah, you need to know some of the principles within that in order to make sure that the individual is getting an individualized approach. And it sounds too like what you're saying is it still needs to be hard to get an adaptation. Oh, God, yes. Just because somebody's hurt, they they need adaptation maybe more than somebody who's already in tip-top shape. And the Mount Rushmore of PT, you know, the glute bridge, bird dog, side plank, and whatever else, you know, pick your, pick your exercise clamshell, uh, may not, may not cut it. Do you have issues with, I don't want to say buy-in, but let's say you have an athlete you only see once a week or so. Do you send them off with like the rest of the week or do you talk to their strength conditioning coach or the sport coach to make sure they're getting re- repeated bouts that you've talked about that you may not be getting in the clinic? Yeah, ideally. So that's a, that's a, situation again an individual type thing if does my high school athlete have a strength coach you know in most cases not really unless they're in season or something like that um does my high level athlete have a strength coach a lot of times yes then the question is have you established a relationship with the strength coach are they on the same page or you know other things um my sort of default is if I want to ensure that changes are occurring and the external support system for the individual is insufficient to do so and they are not a driven sort of person and financially insurance-wise allows it, I tend to like to see them twice a week for the first little bit while or during the time period where I want to see changes because then I'm controlling it. If they have an external environment that allows them to do it or they're pretty intrinsically motivated, then we start looking at, you know, do I need to talk to their trainer, their coach about here's the things that I'm working on X, Y, and Z. You can do anything outside of these few rules. Go get him strong, right? That's that's the perfect scenario where we have somebody able to do that. If they're just intrinsically motivated, I find something like the uh, DAPRI to be great, right? The daily adjusted uh, periodization where you work up to a rep max and then utilize that rep max to inform your fourth and last set, which then informs the next workout. I found that one to be very good for teaching people how to do something. And it sort of takes some of the control out of their hands as opposed to if I'm just having them work up to a repetition max which also works fairly well. Um, but I would say I've probably gone with Dapri more than anything else with that sort of situation. You mentioned in the description of the upcoming webinar, the issue with the word predict or just the paradigm of prediction in general. Can you talk a little bit about how that applies to exercise programming in clinical settings? Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth, right? And that's really what being punched in the mouth is leaving the initial eval and going back and living life. Uh, no plan, uh, you know, makes it beyond first contact. We start looking, right? So boxing, military, you pretty much every group has some sort of expression similar to saying that the best laid plans don't actually hold up. And yet periodization is the idea that we can have a best laid plan and it is going to hold up for the next four, six, eight months or more. Um, And I I think that that is a little bit of hubris on our part, thinking that we can sit down and with the information that we've taken at one point, be able to predict what's going to happen down the road. If we sort of go out of the strength and conditioning literature and we start looking at this, we find that it's there's a large body of information saying that, yeah, we pretty much suck at uh, or predicting anything. Most people will overpredict their abilities. They'll underpredict the amount of time. So uh, you start looking at building projects and typically the amount of money that they believe it's going to take is two, three, six times less than it actually takes, the amount of time significantly less. Um, we overpredict our abilities, right? So I think 75% of people out there believe they're above average drivers or whatever the statistic is. The idea being that we always think that we are better at prediction than we actually are. And yet anytime we test it, 
we come up short. And this is what Tetlock's research really goes around, the whole idea of the super forecasters. And really what they found is the people who did best were the ones who started off with a the best possible guess and then continually updated their guess based off of new feedback that came in. And you're not seeing huge swings back and forth. And this is really just Bayes' prediction or Bayes' uh, approach to uh, probability is you you establish your prior, whatever you believe it is. And in rehab, this is usually base rates. So we might have somebody who comes in the door and you hear you're going through this objective and you know with this population, X, Y, and Z is typically the things that you're seeing from the weakness or performance perspective. And then you run through a few tests and these tests are relatively, hopefully well done. And so now you update your just general beliefs to more specific ones based off of this individual. And now you know a little bit better where he is or she is and where you're looking to take them. Then you start saying, all right, so this is where I want to end up. This is how I think it's going to be. However, you need to build in feedback loops that auto-correct because otherwise you're just relying again on your ability to predict. So the idea isn't that we can't predict because we have to. That's part of what we do. The idea is that we need feedback loops built in that constantly update our prior beliefs with new information. And then we can take that new information, weigh it in light of how certain we are that our previous beliefs are accurate, and then move forward based off of that. And this is where things like heuristics really actually work well. And um, biases tend to do pretty well in these situations because of the fact that you're just taking the quick blush, quick look at, hey, this is my prediction based off of these things. And decision-making around those contexts actually tends to be where, yeah, you know, heuristics do better than some of these more elaborate type prediction models because of the fact that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't fluctuate as much probably with the variability. Um, so, yeah, ultimately it just comes down to we need to realize that our beliefs and our abilities to predict are, you know, we've predicted our abilities to predict as being much higher than what they actually are. And so we need to remove our own issues out of the situation in order to ensure that down the road things are as accurate as possible, while also realizing that when we're making the predictions, if we get too invested and dug into things, we might be just really jumping off one way or the other based off of all these little noises in the system versus actually paying attention to the signal. When is good enough better than optimal? You know, are we ever, are we ever in optimal, especially in the clinical setting where we've got all these variables to account for? I think we are probably accidentally in optimal now and then. The problem with optimal is that there's an opportunity cost to waiting to find optimal. Um, and this is, again, so movement, uh, the idea of the body waiting to find the optimal way to do something is kind of ridiculous because the amount of processing power and time it takes exceeds the amount of time and processing power available to make that decision. So um, Ting and her group had published a paper, I think it was the Neuromechanics of Human Movement or something like that, where, and as far as I know, they coined the term of sloptimal which is the idea of good enough, right? So the idea, it's not optimal because once we, this, and it really comes down to the optimal stopping problem. This is the question of when do we stop? If you're interviewing people for a job and you have 100 applicants, do you interview all 100 or do you accept somebody at some point along there? Because what's more valuable? You getting the absolute best person out of that 100 or you getting somebody who's going to do the job adequately without you then having to spend the amount of time investment it would take to interview all 100? It's This isn't an issue that's unique to periodization or rehab or strength and conditioning. This is a um, issue. Sorry, my, my light in here is motion sensor, so now and then it'll go off. This is an issue that is just unique, unique to humans in prediction. So the idea of sloptimal or the idea of satisficing, which was uh, coined, I think, back in the 50s or 60s, Right, these are great terms, um, but they really help you think of the idea. Something that satisfies is sufficient to get the job across. And if we look at the tech industry, 
right there, this is the same idea. They talk about a minimum viable product. So the idea of something that is sufficient to answer the big questions without being bogged down by the amount of time it would take to make sure that it answers everything perfectly. And so when we're dealing in the clinic with 30 minutes to 60 minutes with an individual and we're seeing them once a week, maybe twice a week, maybe once every six weeks, we're not worried about optimal. We don't have time for that. We're worried about is what we're doing sufficient to elicit the adaptations that are necessary for this individual. And that's where some of these ideas of heuristics and models that update themselves and having feedback loops, I think, really kick in. As you're talking, I'm thinking of the analogy of an airplane and how a plane is off course most of the time, but then it rears back on course constantly. So it's a little bit off course. It's bad on course. So it's kind of that same idea that you mentioned earlier as constant feedback loops that can kind of steer you back on course to give you a general direction of where you guys are headed. Can you give some examples, and you may have already done this, of some touch points or examples of these feedback loops that you implement and how often you implement them as just touch points during the rehab process to kind of gauge progress? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, that the airplane idea is a great one. Um, the way we catch a ball is a great one. We're not sitting there complex, you know, uh, thinking about all the different differential equations that need to be solved in order to figure out where the ball is going to land. We're looking up and we're maintaining the same angle of gaze. And as long as that's maintained, we're going to intersect with the ball. Um, running would be another example of, you know, if we use cadence and we increase the stride frequency utilizing a metronome or something like that, all the other problems sort of organize around that. Um, as far as a feedback thing, I think there's, there's a couple different levels if you think about it. We have within session feedback loops. And for me, that's usually the person coming in and asking them, you know, zero to 10, how do you feel today? And then zero to 10, what is your energy level at? I put out that handout, I think last fall or this spring about the um, within session feedback loop. And those were the two main scales. One goes zero to 10, the other a 10 to zero. And then we can sort of chunk it into easy, moderate, hard based off of the feedback that they're giving us. Within set, we can look at feedback around discomfort. And we can look at feedback around RPE or rating of rate or perceived exertion. So just sticking with really just the easy, no tech ones, you can just ask the person, you know, how many reps could you do? And occasionally I call them out, right? I'm not going to just always go with their idea of reps and reserve as being honest. If they tell me they can get three more, I'm like, go, all right, give me those three. They do the three. How many more can you do? I got another two. All right, give me those two. All right, how many more? I actually can do another one. All right, do that one too. Like, so you had six left, not three. And so just updating by anchoring and we'll re-anchor as the weight's getting higher. So if we're dealing with somebody who initially was doing lower load with a tempo-based approach, their familiarity with their fatigue is more of a muscular endurance type fatigue. Right. Whereas if we're getting into higher loads, they might not be familiar with where failure is with that high load when it's more of just a strength based um, loss uh, at the end of those sets. So I do use anchoring quite a bit as a feedback loop. Um, I use RPE. I also then will look at more on a regular but not daily basis of external measures. So what is it that they're, you know. Their concordant sign would be something like Maitland uh, talks about, right? What is it that reproduces their symptoms? Within tendinopathy, I use a load test daily. With anybody who has a tendon issue, right, what is it that brings on your pain? I want you to do that every morning, same time, record down the level of discomfort you have with it, and then that helps inform, is what I did the day before too much, too little, just right? And we just constantly update based off of that. And then objective measures, somebody with a, let's say, a knee issue, right? We want to return to play. Is is their quad index sufficient, right? Um, and this is, would be a thing where you can get into the discussion of a quad index versus a hop test. The problem with the hop test is there's multiple degrees of freedom. So they can organize around and give you the answer you want, utilizing options that do not fall within that sloptimal range because of the fact that they're utilizing a hip strategy, 
right? So this is where something like a quad index, there's no other, you can't cheat it. Now, it doesn't mean, you know, people say, oh, the quad index isn't functional. Well, yeah, I'm not really too concerned about that. I'm concerned in an optimal environment, what is this individual's ability to generate force? Now, yes, there's transfer of training aspects. Yeah, there's, we can have all those discussions. However, at the end of the day, if we have a huge deficit and when we look at the way they move, they're compensating around it, we need to give the, them the individual constraints sufficient to afford them the opportunity to move within whatever that sloptimal range is that hopefully keeps them out of the uh, re-injury risk, right, or, or sort of terrible triad of uh, positioning and all. Um, so I, I, th- I would say it's, it's multi-level. And at each level, we might have more and more objectivity in order to ensure that the lower levels are being kept honest throughout the process. That's great. Can you give an example of a load test that you use for tendinopathy, number one? And then number two, do you ever have an issue with an athlete perseverating on that test, like testing it a hundred times a day to see, oh, there it is, there it is, there it is. Or where am I at right now? Every five minutes, or you got to actually dial them back from constantly using those load tests? Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. A great example of a load test would be picking up your pot of coffee in the morning for somebody with lateral epicondylgia, right? It's just everybody, a lot of times my load test is whatever they came in and complained to me about. Um, You know, there's other things we can dig into, but typically that's it. Um, For insertional hamstring tendinopathy, a lot of times I'll have them lay down in a, uh, so you're going to lay down supine with your knee and hip at 90-90. You'll use a blood pressure cuff under the heel, which is supported up on a bench, and you just do a maximum isometric hip flexion, and you look at the onset of pain. Right. So instead of now looking at a number to rate your pain, we might be looking at a number, a level of force before they get pain. Um, as far as the athlete that perseverates on it, yeah, that happens, um, and that's where you know, education and all comes around it. And I might just tell them, you know, don't worry about it at all. Um, but I would say more often than not, you know, if we're using this as a heuristic, it's, it's my issue is usually people who either could do way too much because of the fact that they're like, Oh, you said I'm okay. So now I'm going to overdo it. And they blow things up or, they're terrified. Hey, this this hurt a little bit within session, so I can't do anything. And that's where the load test just kind of keeps them honest of the next day. Well, yeah, you did too much. Your load test told you so. If they test it all day, I mean, I'm like, come on, man, what are you doing? That's, you know, are you, you what you're doing now is an irritation versus a load test. All oh, the load test is a one-time thing. So it might be more of a educational thing. And maybe with that individual, we would then say you're only allowed to test after the days you've done your workout on. So if you do your workout three days a week, you might only do it three days a week. But I would say more often than not, the issues associated with doing it too much are less than the issues associated with not having some kind of a feedback loop, in my experience. Going to frequency of visit, let's say, best case scenario, you said in the beginning of the show that you like to get an athlete in twice a week, at least in the beginning stages, to kind of orient them to the process how many days are you looking at? Or go ahead. Oh, I'm just saying that that is assuming no external support, no internal real uh, driver. So it's it's not that everybody I see comes in twice a week. I would say the population that I would say I almost 100% may come in twice a week for six weeks or whatever is your older population dealing with fall risk because I just want to make them work. And I know it's not going to happen well anywhere else, not because they won't push themselves, but usually the environment isn't conducive to them doing so. Um, the, the individual, the athlete, if I want to make adaptations occur and they're not somebody who's able or willing to do it on their own, that's where that twice a week number comes in. Are you looking to put a specific amount of days in between sessions? Let's say we're talking tendinopathy specifically, because I think there's maybe a little bit more data on that in regards to recoup. Going, taking an athlete to a relative failure, are you looking at putting a day in between those sessions, two days, maybe best, something like that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is where we fall back on our just general strength and conditioning principles. Um, I will occasionally do back-to-back sessions with people, but it's usually very specific situations where one of them may have been more educational skill-based and or if we did a testing uh, day. But I would say 99% of the time, there's at least a day of rest in between. Um, And, uh, you know, this is where the logistics of reality intersect with the perfect situation. Right. So if I had my choice, you know, somewhere two days between would probably be best. But because of the way that the week works and humans uh, work, sometimes it's one day, sometimes it's three days. Uh, But I don't think it really matters that much. Do you undulate intensities within those days? Let's say you have a day where you're, you have to go back to back or they, or even if you have a day in the between, they, they push it pretty hard on a Monday. They come back in on Wednesday and then their load test is a little bit more hot than it was coming in. So they, they're not quite back down to baseline from the prior session. Will you do what's planned? Maybe just at lower intensities or will you, you switch gears? I, I know it's context specific, but I tend to. I would say I'm operating somewhere from 50 to 80% mod- modification of planned and 40 to 20% completely reintroducing, changing things out. Um, I think tendons would lean more towards the do what's planned because it's not usually something that's as volatile. I have somebody who's dealing with a shoulder issue with some sort of cervical involvement. That might be somebody who if they come in and the next hot, we might just throw out a lot of the things that we were planning on doing and approach it from a very different perspective. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's, it's sort of a, this is where those questions initially, how do you feel? What's your level of soreness? And then our base rate understanding of the injury that the individual has so if somebody comes in with the, let's say their post-op ACL, I'm not going to say, oh, well, you're a little bit sore. So, you know, we're, we're just going to do some core work and soft tissue mobilization today, right? There's still certain things that need to get done. Now I might vary last time we had done, let's say some heavy front squats, really forcing into that position and all right, maybe today we'll do Romanian deadlift. Um, Right, but the load is still high. It's just offload. It really comes down to manipulation of stress and manipulation of forces on specific tissues. This, you know, we could we could keep going here, but I think this has been a great discussion and intro into the webinar. And I want to give I want to give people details about how to do that. And then I don't want to forget about you mentioning your exercise library, which is a great great resource. So I'm going to come back to that. So for the listeners, Scott's webinar is on May 29th. All of this and, and more will be covered on that webinar. So you've got two options in regards to uh, signing up for that. You can either go on clinicalathlete.com and sign up for the webinar only, and or you can sign up for the webinar plus a two-month free trial to the Clinical Athlete Forum where you get all the past webinars and all the great resources that are already in there. If you pick the webinar only option, but you can't, cannot make the date, don't fret because you'll get sent the recording and you'll have two weeks to view it. Uh, but it's still good to go to the live event because number one, it guarantees that you'll actually see the content and avoid that procrastination bug. And number two, you'll be able to ask questions at the end. All the details can be found at clinicalathlete.com slash events. Scott, can you talk a little bit about, and you got to run here, but your, the exercise library that you've made, which I think is an amazing resource for people. Can you just touch on how people can view that and what that's all about? Yeah, um, so it sort of emerged from the most common question that I had, um, both in PT as a student and then since, is, well, tell me some good exercises for that. And I say, well, the problem is we can't have the conversation about good exercises because you're not qualified to have that discussion until you understand the principles underpinning it. Um, and so the instead of repeatedly typing, I think Stu, what was it, the uh, doctor uh, student physical therapy group uh, started up actually back near the time I was just finishing up PT school. And that was the thing that I kept seeing. So I threw up on my website, I just sort of curated a list of and I continually update it just 
research papers, blog posts, videos, webinars, anything that's out there available free that give foundational uh, understandings as well as joint specific. Um, and then starting this year, just because of the fact that I got so many questions, I've started posting and I'm doing it through Instagram because it's the easiest way to do it for me and takes the least amount of time. Just videos based off of different themes of various exercise options. Um, so the website is uh, my business name is physiopraxis.co. Um, and then my Instagram is physio underscore praxis. And then, you, you know, I'm always, I'm fairly active on Twitter and stuff like that. And that is just my name, S-C-O-T-M-O-R-R-S-N is my handle on there. Um, so, yeah, those are the three probably best ways to get with it. But so far, the feedback on the database is pretty good. It's free. I mean, you just log on. I've hosted the site now for about uh, eight years or more. Um, and I Every time I'm like, eh, somebody, I get somebody telling me, hey, I really like this. It's really helped a lot. So I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I should keep it going. So, Are those also the best ways to contact you through those channels? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can always probably Twitter, uh, DM me on there, or uh, you can email me. Uh, I have a contact form on the website that jumps into my email. So that works as well. Awesome, man. Uh, a couple housekeeping things i apologize if the if you kept hearing noise in the background or on i've got a weightlifting gym behind my office here and we have a block pull cycle that everybody's running and so they're really noisy they're wooden and they just it's right outside of my door so i'm sorry if it was super noisy and then before anybody asks michael ray and Derek miles couldn't join us just because their schedules and they're treating patients and all that fun stuff so we're all still friends they'll probably be on the next show just in case rumors start but Scott, man, thanks so much. That was an amazing conversation. I'm really, really excited for the webinar. I think it's going to be awesome for clinicians and know that people are going to get a lot out of this show. And I'd encourage the listeners to listen more than once um, because there was a lot of stuff in here. So thanks so much. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to get on and just talk about things that we're both passionate about. And thank you for what you've done with the clinical athlete. It's kind of cool to see a subgroup of people who are interested in this. I remember when I was starting PT school, myself and Don Reagan actually went to undergrad together and we were talking all the time about how, yeah, it seems like all PTs want to do is run in Pilates. Where's everybody who wants to lift weights? And it's really cool to see just in the last, you know, eight to 10 years, that's really changed a lot. There's a lot of interest in just good practical exercise prescription principles. Well, the best part for me is just connecting with guys like you and being able to learn. So I, I appreciate it. Uh, we'll hope to touch base again soon. Yeah, absolutely, man. All right, Scott. Thanks, everybody.